welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, I'm speaking with Taylor Lorenz, who is a journalist at the Washington Post. I first met her in 2018 when she was writing at The Atlantic and caught my attention with a piece about young radical politics on Instagram. In my opinion, Taylor is the preeminent journalist on all things social media and emergent viral trends. She's a returning guest to the podcast, and this time we're talking about her forthcoming book, Extremely Online. There's a purchase link below in the show notes for this episode. Let's get into it. I'm very excited to have you back on the podcast. What we first heard about in the last podcast was that you've been writing a book that is now coming out on October 3rd of 2023. And you've also been very busy ruthlessly shitposting on your meme account. I I have to ask if your book editor or any other publication you've worked for has asked a question about the wild shit that you post to that account. (laughs) I have a lot of accounts. I mean, I think anywhere I work is aware of my insane internet presence (laughs) all over (laughs) on every platform. I've gone through a lot. I mean, this is a new one. I, I have, I've been banned, unfortunately, for community guidelines violations previously. Another censored. One. But I love Instagram. I've been an Instagram person forever, and I'll never give it up, no matter how many times they ban me. <laughs> My shitposting days are largely behind me at this point, but I have certainly gotten a few questions or raised eyebrows, uh, sometimes much more than a raised eyebrow, from different people in universities and institutions and publications that I write in. But we're here today to talk about your forthcoming book, Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence, and Power on the Internet. Maybe I can ask you to just tell us about this new book that you've been working on for two years now. It's funny, I was talking to Simon & Schuster recently, and I I need to perfect my elevator pitch, but um, (laughs) it's basically um, this story of the what people, which I hate that term, creator economy, but it's about sort of like the influencer world and how that whole industry emerged. So it starts in like the early 2000s through 2020 to today when everyone is completely immersed in it and sort of how the industry built itself and how our perceptions of fame and attention changed and how these platforms like you know a lot of platforms emerged and fell and also like the user impact the impact that power users had on these platforms i think that we've had so many tech books that tell the corporate side of the story and like the facebook book or the youtube book hmm. and you know but we never hear from the user side and in fact users are just as influential as the tech founders in terms of products sure. You know, it talks about these power users, what people would call influencers now, but people with large followings or a lot of impact and how they shaped the platforms and also our culture. I guess it's last year, these Twitch leaks. Obviously, there's a few. This is the case on pretty much every platform. But on Twitch, especially, there's a few creators who are just like massively, massively disproportionate. Like they are essentially the whole platform in terms of the view numbers, in terms of the revenue and and whatever. There's actually examples of this in World of Warcraft, where the game masters, the GMs, will send a personal message to certain players who have, they're holding too much of the auction house of like the server's economy, that this person could crash the global economy if they chose to liquidate a certain asset or something like that. In this example for a social media platform, if too much of your revenue is concentrated into a small group of users, that makes them really, really powerful and they can make demands over the platform. We also have negative examples of this, where I think of something like Vine, where the creators tried to organize and then were not very successful and the platform no longer exists, obviously. Maybe in the course of this research, this history of the creator economy, 
Are there certain points that stick out to you as being an inflection point or a moment of success or a low point in that story? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Vine. I have so I I could have written an entire book on Vine. There's yeah. just so much there and I wrote a lot about the that tension because I think that was such an inflection point when Vine failed and the hostility that they showed towards their creators. I mean, the founders of Vine were openly antagonistic to yeah, content creators. To and say, yeah. so was Snapchat, which I think really ultimately hurt Snapchat as well. You know, as my book talks about, like tech platforms always viewed content creators as like scammers and kind of spammy people that were exploiting the platform and weren't using it the way it was intended. You know, like mm-hmm. Facebook notoriously, you know, has had this sort of hostile relationship with content creators. And I talk about the Facebook versus MySpace visions of the internet. And MySpace, it's funny because MySpace talked so much about itself as an entertainment platform and almost the exact same language that TikTok uses today and had this very similar vision to TikTok actually in terms of discovery and fame and attention and but they failed ultimately um and i think it was it was before you know people were used to putting a lot of themselves on the internet but and then a lot of those people tried to go to facebook and facebook was like basically like fuck off and i just you know i think about something like the launch of the news feed which a lot of people don't think of as like something on the timeline of influencer culture but i think it really taught all of us to start posting for an audience on the yes. internet which we yes. have never done before and so this awareness of like posting for an audience and having people that you don't necessarily know in your immediate circle know things about your life. Like that's just, it's influencer culture on a micro level. And I think a lot of times people think, oh, I'm not, I'm not above, you know, I'm not an influencer. I don't participate in that. But we all participate in that. Just even the way that we commodify ourselves today, like it's, it's all sort of like has those roots. So, and I talk a lot about bloggers too. I mean, I started as a blogger and mommy bloggers and how they pioneered so much. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I would go as far as to say that the switch from a chronological feed to an algorithmically sorted news feed was, I think, the biggest transformation of society's method of organizing information, period. The cascading consequences of that for personal relationships, the idea that you are posting to an audience as a creative entrepreneur, to the political implications of that, you know, not in abstract way, in a practical way, you instantiate an idea of the public by who it is that you're speaking to, whose feedback you take into account, and all sorts of things like this. What was the process like for writing the book? Are you going back and talking to different creators and influencers from the aughts? Are there nimcells featured in the book that oh, yeah. uh, whose I mean, stories tell this arc? Yeah, I think that's most of the book is kind of it's focuses on the users and kind of these influential figures or groups or user behaviors that kind of emerged. Um, So it starts, I would say like this whole culture starts with blogging and especially specifically mommy bloggers. And just how these women with blogging, the first blogs were sort of these tech and political blogs in the the 90s, there were tech blogs and stuff. But really in the early 2000s is when the political blogging and, and tech blogging world took off and news. But mommy bloggers were the first people to really commodify themselves on the internet and kind of monetize their personal brands, you know, you could say where they're mm-hmm. like oversharing about 
which is so funny. They were so chastised by for like oversharing and all this stuff. But actually, when you read their blog posts, it's like the type of stuff that any one of us would post on Instagram today. Are you talking about like a story about breastfeeding or something yeah, that feels a little bit yeah, private? Yeah, or like um, just the challenges of like motherhood. Like, oh, yeah. you know, like Sammy didn't, you know, threw his bottle on the floor today, and I, I'm feeling so depressed and lonely about I that. See. And I see. And then no one. I mean, the reason that that whole thing existed in the mommy blogging boom happened in the in the mid 2000s aughts i guess you could say is because women's media was so sanitized and women's media like traditional legacy women's media never acknowledged the hardships of motherhood and it never interesting you never talked about things like postpartum depression or struggles to breastfeed or wearing diapers after you have your first child you know like all these like messy parts of motherhood and which we all it's completely normalized now they were the first to really do it. And when they monetized Heather Armstrong, who unfortunately recently passed away, but when she announced monetization on her blog in 2004, it was like a national scandal. I mean, people were, she was just viciously torn apart by the legacy media who were like, you know, how dare you, you know. Yeah, she's coming to eat their lunch. She's (laughs) filling the market demand that they can't. This notion of like women, you should, you should do, perform these activities silently and never for money. You know, even Mm -hmm. though this was a full-time job and she was running her blog full-time. It required an immense amount of work. Yeah, it's curious because we have these very weird ethics that comes with sharing stuff on the internet. And a lot of people, particularly of left political sentiments, have this idea that everyone should give away everything for free. Inevitably, what that results in is people doing extraordinary amounts, like a full-time job plus amount of unpaid labor. These ethics are, are really totally backwards and they're implementation. So the idea of like, that this mom should be remunerated for her work that is valuable to other people just seems like a common sense thing, but it brushes up against all of these kind of really outdated 20th century bohemian ethics that, yeah, you should just be doing it in a decommodified space as if we're already living in fully automated luxury communism or something like this. So uh, it's very curious to me. It's also an interesting thing because this is, I guess the way that you're framing it here is that there's a relatively socially conservative women's media at the time. And so this kind of level of honesty from an individual actor was a very progressive gesture to discuss the difficulties of motherhood which has now totally socially flipped where being a mom is completely conservative and transgressive. Well, maybe this is a good segue to the second topic I wanted to talk about. When we last got together in LA for the previous podcast, you had a different working title for the book. This was something like Gen Z, The Rise of no, Influencers. Uh, Simon and Schuster wanted Gen Z in the title. <laughs> they want it. Okay. They, want it. <laughs> <laughs> they put that in the book announcement. And, and that, I was like, no, it, it has nothing to do with Gen Z. Like this is, this is the, misconception. And once I wrote the book, my editor understood it, but people don't understand it. It's like they associate influencer culture with Gen Z. It started with Gen X. I talk a lot about reality television in my book as well, and just like how that changed our perception of fame and attention and stuff, but not to like jump on you as soon as you mentioned it, but it just, it's so funny because when they sent my book announcement out, it had Gen Z and I was like, no, like it's nothing to do. I think it's just Gen Z is the first generation to truly grow up immersed in this industry where like this industry is now a multi-billion, almost set to be a half a trillion dollar industry at this point. Right. So it's very associated. And also they do things without shame. Like they will call themselves an influencer. You know, young people will sort of take a lot of this stuff as a given because they've grown up in this world. 
the kids of mommy bloggers are Gen Z. Uh, Heather Armstrong's daughter famously spoke out when she was 18 and I think 2018, um, you know, about her experience having a mommy blog, you know, growing up and having their stuff shared on the Living internet. Living in so, public, yeah. I don't know. People used to really call me a millennial journalist. And it's so funny you mentioned Gen Z earlier because people would be like, you know, in my intros and stuff, like, oh, she's the millennial and millennial. And then <laughs> I think in like 2017, it flipped and now I'm associated. And I don't like to be associated with any generation because I think this is a continuum. And I like to write about sort of technology as it evolves, no matter if it affects mothers or children or anyone else, you know? Yeah, I have two I have two things on this, because I absolutely relate to this in that uh, sometimes when you're discussing topics that are the product of history, putting them into generational categories is not the most articulate way of like defining a historical process. But it is a convenient shorthand that encapsulates a bunch of things. The problem with convenient shorthands is that when we used to say millennial, you didn't necessarily mean someone who was born in 1980. Like Kim Kardashian is technically a millennial. But what you meant by millennial was someone who grows up on social media. And now the idea of someone who grew up on social media has shifted to being Gen Z. So whatever comes after it, it's like we're going to keep chasing this rhetorical slippage in the terms. But I think for me, there's a historical process that people are becoming aware of. For me, this is a product of political history as well. And a lot of bad assumptions, particularly stemming from the 1970s, really in the 1980s that are now all coming to a head in the shape of climate, political crisis, and so on, in which Gen Z now has to make decisions in a way that are totally transparent. They're, they cannot afford to have the rhetorical opacity or to pretend that, you know, they're just going around their career for like the, the love of the game and being in this decommodified space. They have to ruthlessly be entrepreneurs in this, uh, in this new social media economy. But the second part of my question is this, because there were two things that stuck out to me from the previous title. One was Gen Z, of course. But the second was the creation of a new American dream. Which I do think is still true. I, I think that part is true, how this, it's been sold to people that way. Of course, it never works out <laughs> for 99% of people. I mean, it's so funny. That is a line from my book proposal where everyone is told you can make it on the internet, right? Yeah, and you can yeah. hustle hard. And my book talks about the TikTok content houses and Gen Z. It's not like some total historical thing. I think it takes us from where it began to where we are today. And the hustle culture of it all and the pressure cooker that these kids are put in into. Mm -hmm. But I think these tech companies have sold it that way of like liberation and um, achievement and, you know, just get, make some, start making YouTube videos. Anyone can do it when it's actually insanely hard to succeed. And liberation always seems to mean unpaid child labor. Yeah. <laughs> how does that, how do those things always go together? So interesting. So, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think back to this article by Ben Davis, who is the national art critic for Artnet News. So he's uh, someone who's been very influential in my thinking in the past few years, but he had a similar line, um, this idea of a new American dream. And I'm going to paraphrase what he wrote in this article. I don't recall the exact quote off the top of my head, but something like, social media put gas back into the empty tank of the American dream. That there was a few generations, really a historical era in which there was the possibility for upward mobility to do better than your parents. This is the American dream. And that was true for the boomers. It was somewhat true for Gen X. And then right around this tipping point of like the 1980s, the onset of neoliberalism, massive offshoring of industry, decline of upward mobility and opportunity, millennials hit that really hard, but they did have social media. The idea was that although there's not 
the possibility for any sort of upward mobility in society, you can still get famous on the internet. Now you see this in the Gen Z form just a decade later, and it's like, my God, this hideous monstrosity, what have we created? <laughs> I know. But I mean, both of us have careers thanks to the internet. That's true. Which is great. And I'm so grateful for that, you know, starting as a blogger. But I feel like what it's become has been just so twisted and warped into this, like, yeah, monstrosity. And <laughs> and also just the competition, like the level yeah. of competition, because yeah. everyone now has access to like a better iPhone. And, it, you know, like, I mean, of course, not everyone in the world has access to the best iPhone. But, you know, the bar has been lowered and more people are on the internet. And the money that's poured into this industry, especially in the past five years, which my book talks about, like, is so insane that it confuses people. You know, they think that, oh, I'm going to get a piece of that pie. I'm going to be Mr. Beast or whatever. And it's like, that is the top 001%. But it's just the same way as we look at billionaires in American society. And, you know, you see people, oh, yeah, you know, I identify with Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or whoever. And it's like, you will never reach that level because it's impossible. I think of these incentives on social media for people to differentiate themselves from the crowd, to ruthlessly build a creative career, to market yourself as a personal brand. There's a lot of political chaos, like downstream political chaos that comes from this insane competition of carving out a creative career. You know, imagine you map this into the field of journalism where it has more direct consequences there's young people who probably lean center left or center right, but then to differentiate themselves and to do effective controversy marketing in this really, really competitive economy, they have to go extreme right and extreme Look at left. Tim Pool. There's so many examples of people like that and that I feel like I as a millennial watched and came up with and I've seen them mm. devolve into extremist influencers, mostly on the right, because I think you get a lot further if you cater to power. The bizarre thing is that I think, given the spectrum of the internet, Tim Pool is now the center right because yeah, the spectrum has, has gotten so fucking wide. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I mean, I saw the Kanye interview that lasted about 10 minutes and I was like, ah, Tim Pool sounds like a reasonable person oh, God. here. That's, yeah, against that foil, of course. Yeah. yeah. But I would absolutely agree that, yeah, this phenomena of, I've heard it described as audience capture, yeah. that there is enormous, enormous reward cycles for catering to to the most extreme elements of your audience. And then what happens is that if you try to push back, say, you know, you're moving right or you're moving left, and then you try to nudge back a little bit towards the center, which is where you started out before you had to market yourself and set up this big media content platform. If you try to nudge in the other direction, your audience goes fucking crazy. Yeah, I will say there are centrist influencers too, though. You there, know, like <laughs> there are there are all I guess the neoliberal, they're insufferable. Um, <laughs> it's just I I think it's like I mean I think you get far by catering to power and you get far by defending powerful people. Those are the I mean look at like the deals that Rumble is giving out to content creators like and Rumble's a of you know right wing competitor YouTube that's backed by Peter Thiel like. They're going out and call in, which they acquired David Sachs's podcast live show platform. Like they're going out and they're capturing people that assert a specific ideology and giving them huge, huge, huge deals. And look at the Steven Crowder, $50 million. You know, like yeah, there's a yeah. lot of money to be made on the right and there's not money to be made on the left on the internet in the same way. But there's yeah. social capital for sure. But I do think that like as more and more money has poured into the online space, and especially on the right, you just see a lot more people gravitating that way. 
Yeah, I mean, that is always the structural imbalance of describing left and right as equal alternatives, because there is money on the conservative right to fund media organizations. There is equally money on the liberal progressive left to fund publications, but there's not like a trade unionist sponsored left publication that's offering people handsome sums of money to do their work. You know, you're working for like pennies on the dollar of what any of these other people are getting. And especially in an American economy where you don't have the social democratic benefits of like a health service or childcare or things like that, people can't really afford to do underpaid work. Those are just the, the unfortunate conditions. It's really detrimental. We've touched on this in a few different ways, but the effect of social media and specifically these algorithmic platforms, what they've done to legacy media organizations and institutions, they've kind of created conditions for dissident voices to be boosted. You know, I'm wondering if like, because you've been formally involved in journalism in a serious capacity for a long time now. I mean, I observe it, but I'm formally involved in the art world. I'm not, I'm not a journalist, although I've published in a few different places. I wonder if you've seen over the course of your time watching this creator economy, also being in legacy institutions, have you seen those things drift apart? Have they become more like each other? Or what has been the effect between these two foils? Yeah, it's been bizarre to watch. I think that legacy media has been so completely completely unprepared and and actually actively ignorant. Like when you look at coverage, mm. it was just shocking to go through and read old stories on the New York Times and just be like, wow, you are so completely <laughs> idiotic and wrong on like every single piece of this. It's shocking how, you know, bad it is. I can think of a war in particular that really sticks out to yeah, me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, right. They're never on the right side of any issue. Um, But it's, you know, it's just crazy how unprepared they were and the hostility and the dismissiveness and that's what's hmm. so funny because they're so dismissive and the way in the article and the, the way that they, they write about influencers especially and i think that's also a product of the fact that reporting on the history of all of it so much this entire industry was pioneered by women and and people of color but really women and gay people kind of like people on the margins that didn't have a voice in legacy media like we're giving the example of mommy bloggers right like yeah. they didn't have and so they turned to the internet and they got huge followings and i think only recently we've seen like the cool like hot influencer guy emerge like but it's so funny i was writing about lonely girl 15 or you know remember that of like of course yeah, yeah wow. and they cast and i was interviewing you know just one of the guys involved with it about casting the guy and the her boyfriend who played the boyfriend on the youtube show and they were like we had to pick someone that wasn't very attractive because people wouldn't believe that an attractive guy would spend time on youtube like huh. building an audience it was totally unbelievable wow. at that point And so it's just funny how our societal perceptions have changed and the way that people spoke about influencers was like, these are losers in their basement or they're... (laughs) Wait, I've literally streamed from my mom's basement for like two years. So as... (laughs) No hate, no hate. I mean, maybe it rings true. But also just like the sort of famous phrase was famous for nothing. Famous for nothing. Yeah, right. Narcissists, um, fame horror, you know, like these and a lot of like really misogynistic language. You know, these women that built these brands, I mean, some of the first people to really productize themselves and launch companies off their audience were beauty vloggers. So it's just interesting. And I think that that was a huge reason why venture capitalists, Silicon Valley people, legacy media, 
dismissed it because they were like, oh, these are just stupid, silly women, you know, doing silly women things online because they're narcissists taking selfies. And I mean, the way the media talked about these, I I have so many examples in my book, just going back and seeing the way that the media talked about women influencers who, in some cases, built $100 million businesses, huge brands that are sold, you know, all over today. And they were just vicious and, and just like, oh, these silly girls, you know. That is, that's so interesting. Obviously, social media massively rewards sexy selfies and all sorts yeah. of narcissism and, and whatever. Yeah. So that's like, okay, For we sure. can carve out like a few different slices of the pie. So that criticism is true to to a portion, but then there really are these conditions of exclusion where people are basically be, what we're describing as being gatekept from legacy institutions. They now need to go to the platforms. They have to go direct to the audience that they serve because they can't get past the editors who think, well, you don't really resemble the voices that we're used to hearing hearing about and whatever. And a misunderstanding of the market. Like, I mean, it's one thing that social media can do, for instance, like Michelle Phan, you know, she started with like these makeup tutorials, especially for Asian eyes, you know, like it was serving these like niche markets that mass media was never really able to serve. And that's just an example in the beauty. But I think it's true of, of like any type of content. Like you can find this like really lucrative, small niche community online and build a successful business around that. But if you're a mass media institution, you have to appeal, you know, legacy media in 2010, and you're doing a national magazine, like you have to appeal to the widest audience. And so ultimately that kind of hurt them because I think when it came to the internet, it's all about niche. I don't know. It's been interesting to work within these institutions because I used to work as a social media editor. It was just so dismissed. Well, I think if I'm thinking of this example that it's been a while since I talked about this, so I may uh, miss some of the details. But in 1989, when you were looking at the top 100 for music, all of this was done by basically people at the magazines calling up record store owners and saying, hey, how much did you sell this month? And what are the numbers? And so on and so forth. And then in 1990, they swap over to what we would imagine today is like scanning the barcode on the CD, and then the numbers are just outputted directly, and there's no gatekeeper or intermediary in the process. And all of a sudden, in 1990, you get the first country music album that hits the music top 100, you get the first heavy metal album, and all of these different genres that were not considered part of like what American pop was, but that's actually where the market and attention were. And so in the years previous, the only conclusion that you can derive is that the record store owners were reporting their own biases to the magazines, and that's how the information was being relayed. So it's a very interesting kind of analog where, yeah, certain voices are kept out of the legacy media institutions and then go to the platforms and all of a sudden, oh, look, there's this huge audience and market demand. And I totally think that those things are important. And I would say that probably my experience is similar to that and that I hit a lot of friction in the art world talking about transgressive memes and edgy politics. I had to skip participation in those institutions and go direct to the internet with my work. I absolutely relate to that. But now we're at some kind of weird inflection point where it is no longer representative of what real audiences they serve or publics that they serve. The dynamics of social media, maybe that negative side of the narcissism and the controversy marketing has been totally taken over by like the most extreme, like insane influencers. When do you think that that happens? Was there an inflection point where this thing flipped and all of a sudden the internet as a democratizing force was replaced by the internet as an extreme? 
extreme force? Yeah. I mean, I talk about this in the book, but Gamergate, I think, was a, mm. is, was a really important moment in time um, because it really showed how the internet could be weaponized in really horrible ways. I haven't thought about Gamergate in so long. Yeah. Holy shit. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I think that was a really influential moment that kind of got forgotten about because I think people focus so much on 2016. But I think when mm. you look back to 2014, you saw a lot of this radicalization emerge and a lot of these these influence. I mean, look at the influencers that came out of Gamergate, Candace Owens, like, you know, it birthed, it birthed a lot of people that are really big and influential today, actually, especially on the right. And so and it, and it provided this kind of playbook, not just for online harassment, but for sort of like mainstreaming extremist views. And I think a lot of influencers, you know, picked up on that. I think also the prank era of YouTube, which was really 2017, that YouTube sort of switched the incentives on the platform. And there was this boom in daily vlogging and this pressure for content and to get view. That was sort of like the rise of views culture. Mm. And you saw people doing insane things like staging fake acid attacks, like Logan Paul vlogging a dead body. Like Jesus Christ. Just a lot of extreme content that was sort of normalized i guess and i want to say that like they should be held financially accountable for everyone who got injured by some kind of prank attack if they created the incentives for people to go out and do that like that's just i mean it sounds criminal it sounds well next there have to criminality. been criminal i mean there have been criminal charges against prank youtubers um i mean this okay is, lock them up yeah <laughs> i mean i daddy oh five i know they lost custody of their children over forcing their kids to do pranks and oh my god i think that era also set the stage for a lot and it normally it like pushed what was acceptable to do on the like things that were acceptable to yeah, do on the internet yeah. so far mm -hmm. that to to sort of surpass that, you had to just be more and more extreme and ridiculous. And yeah, well, what do you think about Twitter has radically, radically yeah. transformed in the last few months? At, at this point, some of these changes are incremental, and you can kind of feel the shift in a YouTube algorithm. You can feel the shift in an Instagram algorithm, and then there's like activist investor that just takes over the platform and remakes it into whatever it's going to become. Uh, yeah. Do you think that's going to happen across other platforms as well? Um, I think it would be so hard because Facebook... It's a unique... It's, it's, I mean, Twitter was uniquely susceptible. Twitter never really got its act together. It's always been a weird platform. I talk about this in the book too, but like it kind of never really found its way. I think Jack was always kind of a weird guy and not really like that Silicon Valley, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg is not going to give up control of Facebook. Of course. Yeah. Soon. Yeah. Um, and same with ByteDance. They're not going to relinquish power at all unless they're forced. And I think Twitter was in this weird susceptible place where it didn't quite know what it was. And it was struggling to compete with apps like TikTok that have emerged. I do think that the era of big broadcast-based social platforms is somewhat dying. I think that the notion of us having everything that we post sort of public and searchable and to every single person in the world is something that people less like younger people like less and less want to engage in like it seems psychotic yeah, actually yeah. and also then to have that record be permanent like that's fucking crazy like it is i think you know if twitter was founded today there's no way that tweets would not be ephemeral i would imagine like at least have them disappear after a year of course or, or like we're 24 hours or whatever 48 i mean it's just very weird to have this like long chronological text i agree i agree yeah, but I don't know what Twitter's... I mean, Elon's been so hostile to content creators and really alienated all the power users. I saw a thing today saying it's currently uh, some bank valued at 33% of the value that he bought it for. 
Oh, boy. I don't Obviously, he's not recouping his money, but who knows? It could be, you know, I know he wants to make it into some payments platform or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I wrote a Substack piece about this kind of speculating on a few different pathways for all these platforms to take. It was called the Platform Wars, where, you know, essentially in the last few months, a uh, few weeks even, all these platforms have deployed nearly identical tools of rolling $5 subscriptions, long-form posts for premium users, live streaming. I, they just look more and more identical, whereas, you know, when I think of like 2012, there was SoundCloud for music, and there was Instagram for pictures, and there was Twitter for words. Now it's like you can get everything on pretty much every platform. So yeah, there's going to be a fierce period of competition. And I think it'll be much more difficult to move audiences between those very so distinct difficult. spheres. So difficult. Yeah. And which prefigures, I think, exactly what the Elon Musk plan is, is to create this X everything app, where you now the, get the like... Problem, the problem is, is like, the core lesson of my book is like, do not alienate your power users. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and, and Twitter's power users are... Uh, government officials, journalists, celebrities. But, and I wrote a piece about this last year. I mean, celebrities have all but abandoned the app completely. It's in, in terms of the entertainment world, it's just less and less relevant. And will you go back to it or will you switch I'm over to it. Blue I'm, Sky? I'm going to die on it. I'm I'm on Blue Sky too. I'm on everything. I mean, I, <laughs> I love it. You're going down with the ship? <laughs> yeah. And so, unless okay. he bans me again. Uh, when he banned me in December, I was kind of like, oh my God, I'm free. But I have. I mean, I just, I have a lot of, I have like some meme accounts that I started on Twitter that I still have access to if I want to spin one up again or something. You I just, yeah, you can't leave I can't, your voice. I, but I also like to write about it. I don't think that blue sky is going to replace Twitter. Like, I, don't, I think that the way things are, it's going to fragment. And a lot, I mean, a lot of the core use case of Twitter has already been replaced by TikTok. Like, I give this example before, but like, you know, if you're driving down the highway and you see some crazy fire or you see an insane thing happen, I was just in Cannes and like, you know, everyone has their phone open to TikTok because that's where you go to share. That's, and I think five years ago, if you saw something crazy, you would probably share it to Twitter. Right, right. Now, TikTok, because of the discoverability, is just the default place to share breaking news. And as a journalist, like, you know, if I'm looking to talk to someone after a school shooting or something like you go to TikTok now, you don't go to Twitter because no one would, no one's on Twitter. We talked about giant incentives for Web2, race for scale, controversy marketing, stuff like this. I've never really had a personal investment in Twitter. I, I'm mostly on Instagram because I came from the background of the art world. So I tend to think if we balkanize the media ecosystem a little bit and we have different alternatives for platforms, maybe that is a net positive for having, you know, radical groups from the right and radical groups from the left, just a buffer of distance between each other that they're not fighting all day on one app like Twitter yeah. and we keep them separated and then maybe that's better for just social consensus and political harmony in general. The thing is, I mean, I think this is what's been such a big point of discussion on Blue Sky. I don't know if you are spending time on there recently. I'm on there, but I it's hard to keep up with everything yeah, else. Yeah, so there's been a bunch of discourse on there recently, which because you know, they're starting to scale. And so you're inevitably going to yeah. get these like trolls in. And I think, you know, they started with this tech user base, but also like very progressive user base. And the problem is, is like the people on the far right, especially they want to dunk on the progressives. That's their whole thing. That's why apps like Truth Social and Gab and stuff don't take off because they don't have the liberals there to like dunk on. 
they need that for their content. That is that's very funny. That's okay. I see that. Yeah. So I just don't know that they'll want to. I think that would be better for society for sure if they were sort of like things were more separate. And also just there's so much context collapse on Twitter that like, you know, you yeah. say something, it gets sucked into the other. That, that's the worst. Yeah. So I do think it's I, I think the move towards private spaces and separate spaces and going to places specifically to talk about a specific thing is is good, but I don't know if that's going to happen. So these Gab alternative sites or whatever, they'll always be in some way like parasitic on literally the traffic and the content of other platforms because they need the stimuli. They need an antagonist for the worldview or something like that. A hundred percent. That sounds very Schmidian actually. And the formulation of an enemy is like what constitutes the political and so on. Like, okay, I think that's probably true. I mean, I've done a fair amount of work in the last few years of like following Gab and Parler. Parler no longer exists now. Truth Social is like all these places are just like, it's like a Wild West ghost town where there's like the cutout of a building, but there's nothing behind it. Like nobody's on these platforms, like period. So yeah, they're just totally parasitic on whatever happens in Twitter, then they import it to the next place where they can have relatively less moderated conversations. All of that said, there was actually a very interesting proposal from Parler about community juries for TOS potential really? violations. It was wild because it was the kind of thing that you see from like democratic socialist type people of like, we should have community consensus guidelines where they were recruiting user volunteers to do like their moderation, which was basically because they could not afford yeah. to pay any more moderators because <laughs> they were running out of money. And then, you know, a few weeks later, like the whole platform just collapsed and was sold to somebody else. So. But it was an interesting kind of austerity slash democracy move for a period there. Okay, so we're, we're riffing through all of these different social media platforms, legacy media, different ways of publishing your work. I see you in the legacy media. I see you on Twitter and Blue Sky and TikTok and YouTube. Do you ever think about making an exit from the media world like and just becoming a content creator? Me. I started, I mean, I started... That's how I started. I started as a blogger and I got an audience. I had an audience online myself prior to working in legacy media. And I think if I had had the monetization options that are available today, I would have never gotten into legacy media. Mm. The only reason I got into legacy media is because like to make it as a blogger, it was really hard to monetize and do that. And I had an audience, but I couldn't get money you know, from them. Right, easily. right. So, um, yeah, I think about it. I, I mean, I think it's just like reporting on this industry. I know how what a hustle it is, and I'm lazy. <laughs> and I also it is like, a lot of work. I feel um, I care about legacy media, and that's why I want to fix it. Like, I, yeah. I think I, I, you know, and it, that's also probably why I always have tension at certain places that I've worked because it's like you get there and you just see how broken it is, and you're like, oh my god, please, like these institutions are important. Like some of the investigative journalism that happens, it can only happen in legacy media. Like there's no way anything like that can ever happen on Substack. You know, like the Washington Post just did this fantastic um, investigation into like the AR-15, and there's just these amazing reporters that like they're never going to be influencers, right? They're just like phenomenal journalists. But then they're unfortunately working for these companies that that just are inept and and really backwards in the way that they think. And so I try to like be in the legacy media to push things forward and because I want to reach an audience. I think that like I don't just want to talk to my followers. I want to talk to people that disagree with me and I want to platform to talk to older people and older people are not going to watch my TikToks. So... <laughs> <laughs> But I I don't know. I yeah, maybe, but probably who knows. I need healthcare too. That's the other thing. <laughs> I, I hear you. No, I hear you. I think I think the exact same thing. 
When we met up for the last podcast, we both discussed this analogy of a Titanic heading towards the iceberg and being on the life raft, hoping that legacy media and cultural institutions, in my case, would course correct to avoid the iceberg. But in the meantime, you have to kind of get out on the life raft, otherwise you're going to go down with the ship. I guess the reason why I'm in the life raft is like, I'm actually, I'm just shouting to the Titanic. I'm like, please correct course. Like I care about cultural institutions. I care about legacy media. And I think they are actually the key to fixing a lot of the political chaos that's happening now, specifically because of the platforms. I think it's probably a similar case for you where the work that you produce, it becomes the corrective measure. But if you don't have that possibility to exit, you don't really have leverage to demand that the legacy media, the cultural institution, the Titanic change course. The one thing that you and I have always aligned on is that like these institutions are actually the most important thing to fix because the platform alternative is just so detrimental as the fix. The point is to restore healthy, trustworthy institutions. And that is like the foundation of any democratic society. Yeah. And I should say, I mean, I think the institutions have done this to themselves. You know, they've put themselves in the position that they're in by like just fucking everything up over and over. And it's like they could fix it. So in some, some, you know, I think the days I'm feeling less charitable, I have no sympathy. And I'm like, let the New York Times burn like they've did it to themselves, you know? (laughs) But then then I think about the people, especially, you know, and I understand the hatred towards these institutions because I feel it too. But having spent time inside them, there's there are really incredible earnest people that are doing really important real for de- democracy work. And that deserves to be saved because that's never going to be replicated on YouTube or sh- whatever the fuck, you know? So yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Okay. Well, the book is coming out October 3rd yes, of 2023. Pre-order. Pre-order. Yes, okay. Pre-order, pre-order is the best way pre-order to, is to like, boost. It's so funny how much stuff is by Amazon now. It's like yeah. you have to get on the trending thing of Amazon that I've, that affects if like physical booksellers will carry the book. And it's like this whole thing where you have to hack the Amazon algorithm. or And then also you don't want too many sales from Amazon because if you're trying to get on like a list, it has to be distributed. And I also, I mean, if you go to Extremely on or the link in any of my bio, like, I have the link to bookshop.org to support independent bookstores and stuff too. Um, but yeah, pre-orders are like the number one thing that matters. So if you think you might read it, order it. And I, I hope people like it. I think there's a lot in there. And it's, I mean, it's it's just an interesting history. And if we want to look forward, we have to obviously understand where we came from and just like gives people a lot to talk about. Awesome. Awesome. I'm super excited for it as an extremely online individual. Some say terminally online (laughs) individual. Uh, Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this book. And Taylor, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. This is uh, awesome. And yeah, I look forward to everything you get up to next. Thank you so much for having me. More again soon. Yes. Thanks for listening. This is an independent show. If you like this content, you can help to show your support by subscribing and leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can support the show on Patreon, Substack, or Channel. Find me on socials at Joshua Citarella on Instagram or Twitter. This is a listener-supported show. I don't do any advertising, so your support is really what keeps this project going. Thanks for listening. See you again soon. Thank you.